Before we get started, I want to say a massive thank you to the team over at The Hustle. They mentioned this podcast on their giant newsletter last Thursday, and it has had a fantastic impact on our listenership here. If you don't subscribe to The Hustle, I highly recommend you do so immediately at www.thehustle.co. Spectacular content. It's incredibly funny and informative uh, if you're interested in tech or the startup world at all. Uh, and on that note, I also want to welcome all of the new listeners who were referred over here by The Hustle. I know we will get along splendidly because a friend of The Hustle is a friend of mine. And quick housekeeping, for the first few minutes of this interview with Seth, you may notice a minor scratching sound. It was either some feedback or headphone cable swinging or uh, something. Um, in any case, it gets resolved a few minutes into the interview And I just wanted to call it out so you don't lose your mind. Without further ado, here is our interview with Seth Skerritt uh, from Proper Cloth. It was, uh, so it was just me for several years. And um, this just so lean and so broke and so, you know, scraping by. And, um, but we, I saw that we had some good fundamentals. Once we picked up a customer, there was a pretty good chance that they became a repeat customer. Welcome, everybody, to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I'm a venture capitalist at Draper Associates. But on this show, we're going to be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we have Seth Skerritt, founder and CEO of Proper Cloth. Seth teaches us how an internship in Shanghai led to an online custom clothing business that has been doubling year over year since its launch. So today on the show, we have a wonderful guest, Seth Skerritt, um, the founder and CEO of Proper Cloth. Seth, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So let's start by having you tell us what is Proper Cloth. Proper Cloth. Um, Proper Cloth, the business I started in 2008. We are a a menswear brand and an e-commerce site. And we specialize in men's custom dress shirts. And what is your background? What led you to starting a, a custom shirt brand? Yeah, my background, I, I sort of had two, two major things that I did before this um, that led me here. One was I, um, I st- the first business I started when I was in college was, was an event planning and marketing promotions company. And so that was a lot of marketing, uh, branding uh, for events and uh, it was a lot of fun but I ultimately didn't want to keep doing that business so I stopped doing that but that was a big marketing and branding influence and then also I had studied electrical engineering in college and I worked as a systems engineer at a big tech company after college for about three years and so there I was uh, designing technology figuring how things work managing a technology team and building stuff and so I sort of had this dual background of some marketing, some engineering, and 
was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Ended up going to grad school, a business school to try and figure it out. And um, well, it was while I was there that I uh, did intern an internship in Shanghai and sort of stumbled upon custom clothing as a concept, just as a tourist and a customer. And the con the the experience to me was really uh, sort of really new and interesting and exciting and and just oh you know the idea that you go to buy clothes and you literally just tell them what you want and uh, you get that was much different than my experience shopping for clothes in the states. So <clears throat> that kind of got my mind thinking about how can custom clothing be uh, uh, brought into the future with technology and the internet and everything, all the new things that were possible there. And I like that idea. And I also really like the fact that this business really required, uh, in my view, a good ability to design and build technology because the infrastructure was going to be complicated and new and unique, but also an ability to do, to develop a brand and run, run and, and marketing around, around it because people don't buy shirts or buy clothes just because it's the best product on the market. They, they're looking for lifestyle. They're looking for branding and, and marketing as well. So that, that's sort of how I, how I came across, came to this uh, business. And did you start the business officially while you were in grad school? Yeah, I, uh, well, officially, I, I guess you could say that I, when I was in grad school, I was definitely business planning and, and doing market research. I, I had no background in fashion or textiles or anything like that. So I was doing all, all sorts of market research. And then I was starting to put together a, uh, um, the design of the website that, that I wanted to create. And I, with my previous marketing and promotions business, I'd done a lot of graphic design for, uh, flyers and t-shirts and, and we built a web website for that. So I had some experience doing design. And so I just was, I just dove into trying to design this, this new concept for how you'd buy custom clothing on the internet. And it was before I graduated too that I'd found a factory uh, down in North Carolina that was uh, willing to make shirts for for me one at a time, uh, custom made. So, yeah, before I'd finished grad school, I'd, I'd already start, definitely started the process. And how did you fund the business early on? Uh, I didn't. <laughs> um, we so let's see. Around that time, I had uh, I had some leftover student loans. I had some credit cards that were, uh, you know, not maxed out yet, and that that was how I uh, got basically supported myself and paid for the few things that I needed to pay for to get it going. More or less, though, I, you know, there was no team. I was doing everything myself. So this was this was a one man operation for a while, <clears throat> and um, and I was able to get a working version of the site launched. It wasn't perfect. It was far from perfect. And um, there were lots of issues, but I was able to get, uh, get something up and running with, without taking on any money. 
but just having that up, you know, didn't mean uh, we were making money. It, it, but it was more like um, it demonstrated that I that it helped people see the concept and visualize it and, and start to interact with it. And it, and it, I think served as a, a proof of concept to some degree, or at least proof that I was going to be able to, to make something that would work. And from there was able to get some small loans from friends and family. And, and it was, it wasn't one big round. It happened over the course of the next year or two. Um, but uh, ended up, doing around $150,000 of loans from friends and family that became convertible notes. And, and that was it. And from after about a year or two, was starting to break even, still as a one-person operation, but um, breaking even, and then was able to organically grow the business, add some, and add more m- members of the team, and um, you know, continue to improve what we were doing and, and, and grow. What year was it that you raised the one hundred and fifty thousand? Uh, I mean, that to, to be honest, I'm, I don't remember because it, it didn't all happen at once. It it happened, you know. Can I borrow five thousand dollars from one friend, and can I borrow ten thousand dollars from another friend, and then, hey, Dad, can I can I just borrow fifteen thousand dollars? Is the last time I asked. Yeah, it was sort of like that uh, over the course of two thousand nine, and and. Uh, maybe into the beginning of 2010, if I recall. And did they all convert to equity or did they want their loans repaid? Uh, it was a mix. So some um, had what uh, were repaid and some um, were not. And uh, although we haven't had a conversion event uh, since we've never done an equity round yet. That's yeah, that's really incredible um, and very uncommon. So good for you. Yeah. And how did you come up with the name Proper Cloth? Oh, the name. Um, well, <laughs> I remember that was a really painful uh, exercise because you know you're kind of like you've got a million problems, you got a million things that you need to do, and. And you want the name to be perfect. You know you're going to live with it for a long time. So, uh, you, and you keep kind of experimenting and trying different things. And um, and we were it was such a lean operation too. I couldn't buy any domain names that were particularly cool or um, things like that. So I, it was a process of trying combinations of words that I liked and checking for trademarks, checking for uh, domain names and, you know, making sure the total combination of the word wasn't too long. It was just all those things combined, you know, and um, I liked the word proper. I thought it sort of thought it was sort of sounded British in some ways. And and I think people associated custom clothing with uh, Savile Row and Britain in some sense, the word cloth obviously ties into shirts and the exact product we're making. And, and um, it was that and, and some other things and ultimately settled on that as the, as the name. And how did you decide to start in New York City? New York. Um, that was uh, sort of by chance. I, so I was in Boston in, when I finished grad school and I knew I wasn't going to stay there. And the plan was to go to San Francisco, to be honest. I, uh, cause that's, you know, this was 2000, 
uh, eight, all the startups were in San Francisco. That's where all the action was. That's where all the uh, capital was. And so um, I was actually, I think I had already gone out to San Francisco to start to scout out where I might live and and how I was going to set up my life and business there. But then almost by chance, I ended up meeting someone at some event and he, he was bit from New York and he said, hey, you should come down. And, you know, at least there's a few people you might want to talk to down here. Um, and so I came down and it, it was just like this, um, it was probably in March or April of 2008 and um, March and April in New York are like the best time of the year. It's the weather is starting to get warm, but it's not hot. Uh, the sun's coming out. Everyone's in a great mood because uh, winter's over. And, um, and I just had this amazing weekend down here where I just, you could feel the energy of the city and, and I had some really great meetings with some folks in tech and some folks in fashion. And I just thought, Hey, you know, I, all these plans for San Francisco are nothing set in stone. Let's just come down to New York uh, first and, and, and live here for a while. And, and, you know, we can always change later, but so, so, so packed a couple bags, got on a bolt bus and, and, you know, next thing you know, I was here and uh, never left. And how did you, or I guess, when did you hire your first outside employee? Uh, you know, that, that was probably like 2011 or 2012. Um, it was, it was, uh, so it was just me for several years and, um, this it's just so lean and so broke and so, you know, scraping by. And, um, but we, I saw that we had some good fundamentals. Once we picked up a customer, there was a pretty good chance that they became a repeat customer. And so over time we started to see our, um, our sales increase and, you know, they'd be increasing over slowly, but, but they'd also still drop in certain months and go up and it was a little unpredictable. So, but after like about the third year, it started to be steady enough where I thought, okay, I think I could actually pay someone something to help me out. And, um, a friend, uh, actually one of my friends from grad school, his sister was moving to New York and she wanted to work in fashion and she was looking for some part-time job or something she could do while she looked for her, real job in fashion that she wanted. And so she was a, a great fit to, to come join the team. She, uh, and she started helping out with a lot of our customer support and operation stuff. And, um, and she was in a position too, where like, if I suddenly couldn't afford to pay her anymore, it wasn't going to be the end of the world for her. So it kind of reduced the risk on my side and, and was a good fit for her. And, and, uh, that was a huge help too. I mean, getting some help on customer service was, was a major step forward then. And is she still working with you? No. So eventually she found her, her so-called dream job at J crew and she went there. Um, and then we had another person come in and, uh, fill her shoes. So it worked out great for her and, uh, and great for me as well. And how did you decide on your first product? on your first uh, fabric options and collars and things like that. Yeah, it was, um, let's see. Well, the very first ones, it was just about bootstrapping and being scrappy. And 
the factory that we were working with had basically some fabrics that they had extra of. And they said, Hey, these fabrics, you know, you could sell. And, um, and so those are my first fabrics and they, they were pretty basic, simple stuff, good white, good blue, good pink, some stripes, some checks, nothing amazing, but like they met I, from my point of view, they were like what basic business men wanted. So they, they met the requirements. And then on the collar and, and, and other style side, it was like pretty, you know, we're going to have a spread collar. We're going to have a button down collar. We're going to have a point collar. Like that was it. It was three, three options there. And, and that, that, that was that, that I wasn't going to get too hung up on those details when so many other parts of the business were, you know, needed a lot of attention. And you mentioned that once you found a customer, you found that they would potentially be a repeat customer. How did you find your first customers? Who were those brave souls? <laughs> yeah. So very step one was just emailing everyone you knew. I knew. So, and I had a network from where I grew up. I had a network from college. I had a network from grad school. I, you know, and I just tried to push on those channels you know catch up with everybody and and let them know what i was doing so that was the initial one and that's how i got you know the probably the first 50 customers was from something like that and you know probably uh most of them were buying just out of out of curiosity or pity on you know their friend who was trying to do this this business then um we were also in the early days we were very focused on organic search with Google. And so it didn't happen right away, but we started to get on the first page of the results occasionally, or at least on the second page. And so some folks would find us through, through that, but not a lot. And then, um, was working, um, working on PR, uh, to some degree, I, I would spend a decent amount of time trying to clarify my, you know, our, our, our message and, and reach out to writers and, Actually, in that first year, we got a really great piece with the Financial Times about it, the the story was around folks finishing or folks starting businesses out of business school. That was the the hook, but um, they ended up doing a nice feature on proper cloth, and that uh, certainly got the word out and helped. You know, that's when we started to see customers come in that that I didn't know, you know, and they weren't buying because they felt sorry for us. They were buying because they thought, you know, they needed that product and they thought it looked like we could do a good job. So those were the first customers. And when did the business start to feel like, okay, this could really work? Yeah. I mean, so I guess that you have that first bump and you're selling, you know, five or six, uh, shirts a day, maybe, or something like that. Um, it there was no like one big eureka moment we we never did like a big b2b business deal there was it 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 just was very gradual and you just started to get slightly better feeling you know over that period of those first couple years i would say like after a year in operation um i was pretty confident that this was going to work uh uh, at some point, um, just because you saw the, the sort of general trend of things going up, 
Um, but there was still, I, I don't know if I, if everyone else, if anyone else believed me at that point. And I think a lot of folks were, were nervous, but, um, and it still took another year, probably beyond that to actually be, you know, truly, uh, breaking even. But after a year of, of seeing customers, uh, want what you sell and come back to buy more later, you started to get a real clear sense that, yeah, this, this has legs. And fast forward to the present, how are things going now? How big is the business? How many people? Um, and I, I read that you've pretty much doubled the business year over year for the last five or six years. So how has that gone? Yeah. That, um, so yeah, so now we're about 35 uh, people on the team here in New York. We've got um, well over a hundred thousand clients uh, around, mostly in the states, but around the world. And um, business is good. Yeah, we're doing. We're, we're feeling uh, like we're in a great, great space now. The um, what was the other part of your question there? Um, just how have you handled doubling your growth year uh, over doubling. year? Yeah. So you know, year one was very small. So you double to the next year, you still have like a pretty small year and year two, you double again. You, it's still relatively small. It wasn't until probably like a few years ago that the numbers started to become pretty, um, you know, uh, exciting. And, um, how have we handled it? I, you know, I think some of the core things we've, we've always done is, been very focused on building technology and building tools that we use internally and, and that streamline operations. And so we've, we've always been able to stay slightly ahead of the, the demand and the growth so that uh, more orders didn't necessarily mean we needed more people. And that was, that was, I think probably a, a real lifesaver and um, helped us keep things going like we have. Yeah. Serving a hundred thousand customers with a team of 35 is pretty incredible. So congratulations on that. Yeah. Thanks. Um, some CEOs work on business development, some on product, some on, you know, improving supply chain. What does your day to day look like now? What are you working on? Um, a little bit of everything. That's for sure. Uh, um, a lot of my time is on product, though. Probably about half of my time is around product. Uh, product being um, the the web and technology side of things. So uh, that's things like you, you know. At the moment, we're launching new features to um, provide better support for for customers outside of the U.S. Like like metric units instead of uh, US imperial units like inches and pounds. So for just as an example, you know, we'll be having, we're, we're deep in this metric, you know, logic conversion tool that we're building now. And, um, but, but at the same time, uh, we've got all kinds of stuff happening, new, totally new marketing initiatives, customer service teams growing and, and all kinds of interesting things happening there. Our, photography team and how we um, uh, launch new products is is going through lots of changes and we're uh, you know be very involved in 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 that and you know or or we're going to go shoot a new lookbook out in California and I'll you know, we'll be I'll be out there with the team 
uh, directing the shots and figuring out how we, you know, want to capture that, those, those images. So um, I'm a little bit all over the place these days. Yeah, that's usually the best answer. A little <laughs> bit of everything. What, uh, what are you finding to be the most effective marketing channels today? Uh, let's see. Well, digital is our primary channel. Um, we, we do, well, I guess I should, if I, if I want to really speak broadly, email is, is our biggest channel. Like we, we have a good size email list of our clients. We, we, we send beautiful emails out, um, out, uh, once or twice a week to that list. And that's very important part of our business for sure. Uh, as far as acquiring new customers, we, uh, we do a lot of advertising and marketing on Facebook and other social media channels like Instagram. Um, Google is big, uh, but, uh, and I think Facebook is probably the single biggest, but, but it's not like 90% of our marketing by any means. It, at this point, we have so many channels going on, all kinds of different things that uh, each channel provides what we can get out of it. But, but, no one channel is is more than half of what we do. I've heard your ad on various podcasts. How is the podcast advertising working? Oh yeah, podcast. Um, it's working okay. Yeah, it's it seems pretty good. It's podcasts are podcasts and and radio are interesting, and and really any offline channel is kind of interesting because you your attribution becomes a little trickier if someone clicks an ad in. On, on a digital um, ad- advertisement, you can measure how many clicks you got and you can uh, track if those people were, became customers and if they became customers, how much did they spend? There's, a, there's lots of great ways to measure online advertising, but offline channels, you always have the uncertainty of how many, how, you know, how effective was that or was it effective at all? So, Podcasts are are certainly in that category, and you have to rely on some smart guessing and um, other tricks to to try and quantify how well they're working. But and and also podcasts and a lot of these offline channels, the the markets are much, I think, much less efficient. So the prices that are being advertised for to to do advertising on those channels can can be very high and and but then there's also opportunities to sometimes get on some of those channels uh, for much lower prices. So I think we're, uh, we're opportunistic in that sense. And if we, we do it, so number one, we're doing our best to measure and, and have our best idea of how much we think a certain offline advertising channel contributes to what we're doing. And, and on the other hand, we're, we're try to be flexible and, and, and we, we won't overpay to, for an offline channel, but if, if the right deal is available, we're ready to take it as well. And you mentioned how you reach out to your customers, how you acquire new customers. Do you have any inputs for the customers? Do your customers inform your process or, or pick your next style or, um, how do you deal with that? Yeah, we, um, so we have, we get tons of feedback from customers, almost really an overwhelming amount of feedback. We, we're very good at surveying customers to get their 
you know, how did your experience go? How would you rate the website? How would you rate the customer service? How would you rate the construction of your shirt, the fabric of your shirt, um, all these things. And so we're, we're constantly gathering um, quantitative numbers there and qualitative inputs like, you know, just comments and, and suggestions from customers. And we'll get typically over 500 uh, responses to those surveys every week. So it's, it, it becomes more information that we can even uh, digest. You, you know, you can't read all of those comments every week, otherwise you'll do nothing else. So, but we're, but we are looking at definitely the uh, quantitative numbers on a regular basis and, and diving into the comments and suggestions to try and identify, you know, periodically to identify, okay, what, what can we do to make this better? What could we do to solve these problems? And so we're, we're looking at that information on a regular basis. It's, it's definitely driving our future developments, both on web and technology development, as well as on like, you know, oh, customers seem to want more dark color red fabrics or a collar that's slightly bigger than the biggest collar we have or a pocket that has this, I don't know, who knows, you know, lots of ideas there. So we're, 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 we're going over that. We're trying to um, look for common, uh, you know, r suggestions that come up more and more frequently to identify the next things we build. And you were early to the custom clothing online sort of space, but now there seems to be a ton of competition. How do you deal with that? How do I deal with it? Well, yeah, we were early, but we were not the first. First of all, I, I don't want it to sound like we invented custom shirts or we invented custom shirts on the internet before we were doing this Brooks brothers and Nordstrom's had good custom shirt businesses. And there was some websites that uh, were selling custom shirts as well. Although in my opinion, not very well. And, but we were, I think we were the first to say, okay, we're going to take a really forward thinking approach about how custom clothes can be sold online. And, and then there has, you're right. There have been a ton of, um, other folks with the same idea as us, I would say, coming after we launched. And that's, um, that's interesting. Uh, some of them have, have raised lots of venture capital money and been able to make uh, lots of noise and, and get attention. Um, others are scrappier knockoffs, uh, of what we do, I think. Um, the, I, I'd say the way we deal with it is really just to try to ignore it as much as possible and keep just keep listening to our customers, keep trying to identify where we're weakest and make make uh, be stronger there, trying to identify what our strengths are and, and emphasize them more and just trying to produce the best product we can, have the best experience we can and, and build a solid business. And and we, we've sort of stuck to that and a lot of these competitors have popped up. We've seen a lot of them go away uh, after a couple of years and, or, um, or just become, you know, much less of a, uh, that just sort of fizzle out in some form. So uh, I think just ignore them and keep focused on your customer and, you know, the rest will fall into place. I think that's a pretty good policy. What uh, and what are the challenges that you are dealing with? 
<clears throat> challenges. Um, man, we got a million, so many. Um, I'd say like, uh, let's see, we, um, there's so many things that go into what we do, right? We've got the products itself, the fabrics, the construction, the shipping, the customer service, the marketing, the website, the back-end tools, the front-end tools, the uh, logistics, the photography. You have all these things, right? And so you're always – probably every one of those things has room for improvement. And so we're, we're, we have challenges within all of those categories. I Probably like the bigger overarching challenge that we're facing as a business today is that um, – well, we grew, we've grown a lot um, team size in the last couple of years. And we've gone from being maybe 10 people to being 20 to being 30. And now we're approaching 40. And that's, that's been, I think, one of the biggest challenges for me as an entrepreneur or, or CEO, moving from this, from this mentality of, uh, if something needs to be done, I, I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to work harder and I'm going to get it done to having a few support people, to having a dozen support people, to having people sort of start to having almost departments start to emerge and have leadership in each of those departments will support people around those people. And I think that's been kind of a fun and interesting challenge for us is to morph from this, you know, small team of people just getting work done to uh, a more organized, structured uh, business that has leadership and has um, kind of uh, levels of management. Um, That's been an interesting one. And once you have a customer's measurements, it's an incredibly sticky business, right? Mm-hmm. You said once you order once, it's pretty common for people to reorder. Have you thought about any other product offerings? Yeah. Um, yeah. So like you said, I mean, I mean, I think generally speaking, guys, buying clothes online is hard because stuff doesn't fit and you, you, you buy it and you, you know, it comes and you try it on and it doesn't fit. You got to send it back or, or even just going to the store is annoying because you try on 10 different things, none of them fit, and it's just a long, drawn-out, frustrating experience. So if you can, with with our solution, customers can have their save size on their account, They can and they can order any style they want in that size, and it just becomes all of the pain goes out of the shopping experience. And they can have their business fit where they have their shirts that are they're going to wear tucked in and with their suits or with their uh, khakis and blazer or whatever their work style is, or they can have their untucked, more casual, relaxed fits with fabrics that are appropriate for that. And and so they have their, their safe sizes on their profile and shopping just becomes total breeze for them. We we've put so much energy into developing the best solution for shirts uh, that we can. And we're still, we still see room to make our shirt experience even better. And so we have lots of things we're working on to do that. Adding another product that we provide that same shopping experience has been some, is is certainly part of our larger vision and our hope for, uh, you know, the next, the next few years. But 
it's like starting a whole new business. Uh, there's a whole nother, you, you know, it requires new factories, new fabrics, new supply chains, new logistics, entirely new front end user experience, different thinking about sizes totally differently. There's different patterns. And um, I think the best practices and the approach that we've learned from doing it for shirts will translate to those things, but it still requires a lot of, a lot of work uh, to, to actually bring them to fruition. But we, we certainly have our eyes on the custom suit and custom sport coat market and custom trousers, I think is another big opportunity. And um, those are things we'd like to, we'd like to have a, a great product uh, and service for at some point, but um, it's going to take some time for us to, to bring those to the, uh, to the customer. Paint a picture of proper cloth in 10 years. What do you, what would you consider sort of a successful outcome? 10 years. That's like, that's like ages from now. Um, I, uh, I think our vision is that we would, we would certainly be a, a true leader in the, in the, for the, for men's shirts, for that category that, that if, you know, we'd, you'd walk into a room and, you know, you'd see that like two out of three guys bought their shirt, uh, their shirt from us. That, that would be, that, that's sort of our vision. We, we think we can, we can produce shirts across a wide range of price points, across a wide, wide range of styles. And there's really no reason folks should be buying shirts off the rack from another, from another maker. So really just owning this, this shirt market is, would be, a big part of our vision for 10 years from now. I think probably we would expand, have, have similar options for trousers and suits and sport coats and other kinds of basics that are difficult to fit. And I think we'd have um, all kinds of other accessories and styles and uh, stuff that helps build our brand Things like we already have today with this cashmere sweaters or the ties or pocket squares and things like that. And then I think like, well, right now we're very much an e-commerce focused business, but I would, I would imagine that um, with more and more scale, we would expand our uh, brick and mortar uh, showroom concepts. And so that folks would be, have a, have an opportunity to go and visit us in person in more locations. Yeah. It's interesting how, how businesses sort of work backwards from the old method of thinking where companies used to start with brick and mortar and then build an online business. And now you see companies uh, like Warby Parker and Bonobos starting Casper mattresses, starting online and then building out the brick and mortar presence um, to get the foot traffic, which I think makes a ton of sense. And last question for you, um, what advice would you have for someone starting a consumer business today? Something you wish you had known, you know, nine years ago when you started Proper Cloth? Um, let me see. Uh, well, okay. Fundamentally, I think it really helps if the product you're, you're developing solves a problem for a customer. And that means there's a decent number of people out there that are searching for what you sell. And I, I see a lot of consumer businesses start that are, I don't know, it's like a cool dress or it's a cool 
shoe or something, but it's not, I don't know. It's, it's very, they're very fashion or brand focused only. There's not a, a hard problem they solve. I think if you can, that, that's a starting point. If you can have a, a problem that you solve for customers that, that enough people are actually searching for a solution to that problem, it's a huge help. And, and for us, we, we were custom shirts and, and the problem we solved was that op direct shirts don't fit. And so that's those initial, there's that group of customers out there that were searching the internet for custom shirts or, you know, shirts that could fit and they would find us and they'd see that we solved their problem and they'd become customers. And th- those were the customers that funded our early stages and, and got us started. That, that'd be one piece of advice. Um, another, another thing I say this a lot is, you know, I think there's tons of opportunities out there for consumer businesses, but, um, in order to really start to see things go well, you have to do several different things well at the same time. And you need a great product. You need a great brand. You need great technology and operations. You need great customer service. You need great marketing messaging and you know advertising channels. You need all of those things. And um, if any one of those things is lacking, it's sort of like nothing else works and it's sort of, it feels frustrating, but, but that's just, I think that's just the reality. Um, and it can take time to become great at all of those things and to develop the team and the tools and the processes to be great at all those things at the same time. So, um, you know, you're trying new things, you're seeing what works, you're finding that, you know, this, this uh, branding is not the right branding. So you're doing a different branding. You, you thought you had the perfect product, but after your first run of manufacturing, you realize it's not perfect. You're tweaking that. You, you're, you thought you were going to do customer service in a certain way and you realize it's not working. You got to change how you do that. So you're, there's this iterative process going on in each of these categories. And, um, you know, I think the result is that if, if someone's trying to start a consumer business thinking it's going to be a quick flip or they're going to, you know, have this exponential growth from day one, they're going to be disappointed and um, it's just not how it's going to happen. And, and at the same time, if you launch your consumer business and it doesn't take off on day one, it doesn't mean the idea is flawed and that, you know, it just doesn't work. Oh, people don't want to buy custom shirts on the Internet or something like that. It it means probably one of these areas is not working correctly and it needs to be fixed. And so there's it just it's this process and that this patience is necessary I think to figure out all these things and get them working um simultaneously. And then I guess my last advice for these folks is um Try to keep things lean and try not to raise too much money. Uh, I mean, this wasn't advice I needed because we, we didn't uh, have a lot of folks throwing money at us in the early, early days. But I, I think looking at a lot of the consumer businesses out there now and, and the venture capital model, I, I just I think it's putting too many businesses in this all or nothing situation where if they don't become a hundred million dollar or a billion dollar brand, you know, everybody's screwed. Like, I think, I just think that's, 
probably a lot of those consumer businesses could be amazing 10, 20 million dollar businesses and um, their founders could be living amazing lives. Uh, but this all or nothing uh, situation, I think sort of, it's not ideal for the founder. And, um, and also just too much money, it causes you to hire overpriced people that, you know, so-called experts, but they end up not being able to deliver or, or you, you start rushing or pushing your marketing, even though it's not working. Um, it just, it just leads to, I think, rushing and, uh, sort of mistakes that, that are avoidable if, if you can have a more patient approach. So I think if you can be careful, you can keep it lean. You can figure out how to get all of your areas working smoothly you can have a great business, but if you try to rush it and you try to use a bunch of capital to force it, it you, you might end up in a situation where you're not happy. And is there anything you want to plug? Everyone go to propercloth.com, order a shirt. You'll love it. Uh, quickly, I just want to say I am an enormous fan and user, loyal user of the product. I am a relatively tall human being, and this is the only place that I can get shirts that fit. Um, so everyone else should go if, if all right if i'm going to plug something um a couple things uh we just launched that i think are pretty cool for example we, we we've started doing non-iron cotton custom shirts which are amazing i don't i don't think you can get a uh, truly custom fit non-iron shirt anywhere else today and so that's been a huge success for us and customers love it we just we actually uh yesterday we launched our first merino wool shirts, which are really a kind of a f interesting, fascinating product. If you've ever had, have you ever had a wool shirt before? I don't think I have. Yeah, well, it, it's counterintuitive. You'd think like wool wouldn't be comfortable, but um, it's woven to look like a shirt fabric, and uh, it's a little. It feels it's a denser fabric, so it feels heavy, but you literally cannot wrinkle these shirts even if you ball, put them up into a ball and sit on them. Like they, they, are, they look very sharp and wool has certain properties that makes it odor resistant and um, uh, just uh, be a very low maintenance type fabric. So the Merino wool shirts are out now. Those are kind of an, a, cool, a cool new thing. And... Um, and we, we're working on uh, some other performance fabrics that are um, nylon spandex blends that I think are also pretty, really cool and uh, have some great performance properties. Feel com incredibly comfortable, and um, but look very, you know, look the same as a cotton shirt would. So lots of cool new products always rolling out here, and uh, we're, we're pretty proud of some of the more recent stuff, that's for sure. And is it at proper cloth on Instagram? Yes, that's correct. And okay, I'm well, at Seth Scarrett. At Seth Scarrett on Instagram as well. Um, well, I hugely appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Um, and I will continue to buy your shirts. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Seth, for coming on. And thank you to thehustle.co for the love. Please rate and subscribe if you get the chance or feel so compelled. And have a wonderful week. Uh, we will be back next Tuesday.